All right. Um, thank you for the song. If you noticed, it really went very well with our Sabbath school lesson, did it not? Because people do need the Lord, don't they? Some of you are looking at me like, uh, we don't know who you are. Well, let me tell you, my name is Pastor Alden Ho, and for those of you who don't know who I am, you have seen my photography work, because if you've looked at the Adventist Review through general conference sessions, half of those pictures were my pictures from Toronto, St. Louis, and Atlanta. And I'm hoping that maybe the next one I might be able to get in if I'm not too old. Um, I work for Amazing Facts, and my title there is I'm a Ministry Development Advisor. So I deal with people who give money to the ministry, and I travel and visit with them. And then on the weekends, I occasionally preach, kind of like every weekend. So the message I have for you this morning, there's a little bit of a ring, so you might want to just turn the gain down a little bit. Um, it's called Five Generations, and as you heard from the scripture reading, this is very indicative of all of us. So if you're not an Adventist here today, uh, pay attention because there's a lot of information in there. If you are an Adventist, pay very close attention because I'm talking about you, okay? So... I don't need to ask, but I can tell by looking around, probably the majority of you are Adventists. You want to take notes uh, for this. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, as we come to you this morning, we beseech by the mercies of God that you would draw near to us and that you would touch my lips at this time, that they may speak your words, may we understand the times in which we're living and the imperative that it's not going to be much longer. Open our eyes to the truth. Open our hearts to be receptive of what the Holy Spirit is trying to do with us in these last days. Open our mouths that we may proclaim to those who are searching for truth that there is a Savior that died for them. Please be with me at this time. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time you went to the hospital, you probably went through one of these things where they ask you all these ri ridiculous questions. You ever filled out one of these things before? Why do they ask this? Are they just downright nosy? Do, wh what do they need to know this for? I mean, is there cancer in your family? Is there heart disease in your family? I mean, don't they understand there's a HIPAA violation if I tell you this? <laughs> so why do they tell you this? Tell me. Why do they ask these questions? Your background. Your history. You want to know my background? <laughs> I was born in Singapore. Does that mean anything? Does it mean anything to them? That's not what they want to know. They want to know your family's medical history. Why? They can help me? I, I, I'm fine. I mean, why do they need to know that? See what? See what you're prone to. I like that. Because if there's cancer in your family, it's likely that it may transgress to you, correct? 
You see a lot of women, I've heard of a lot of women who have gone in, grandmother had breast cancer, mother had breast cancer, and they take very evasive actions that they go in at a very early age in their 20s and they get double mastectomies. Because they know it's going to come to them. They take the precautions. We know these things, and the medical doctors want to understand what your history is. Sometimes... uh, if you've been in California and never gone above 2,000 feet, then you won't understand this. But how many of you live above the snow line? Okay, there's quite a few of you. I grew up, although I was born in Singapore, I grew up in Toronto, Canada. And so I always find it very interesting when I go to, for example, when we passed here in North Carolina, it, we just had a snowfall. And this is in the south. We're getting on the interstate, and there's a state trooper standing right there stopping us. And um, all the cars are doing UEs and going back. And I put down the window. He says, there's a lot of snow on the highway. I look at him and says, I'm Canadian. He says, have a nice day. (laughs) I grew up in Toronto, Canada, so I'm very used to this. And we lived in Chicago and Michigan, and I missed this. And in fact, last Last week? Yeah, last week, uh, I was in North Dakota, Minnesota area, for amazing facts. And uh, that's one reason why I asked for all-wheel drive, because I actually was driving on snow and on ice during that time period. Thank the Lord that there were no Californians out there, so I was safe. (laughs) This is very important because if you notice, it's pristine snow. You walk in it. And as long as there's no more snow, you'll never get lost. Because you know why? You just turn around, you follow your tracks back. I'm saying this to you because it's very important for us to know our history. If we look at what the spirit of prophecy says, it says, no one knows the day or the hour was the argument most often brought forth by the rejectors of the Advent message. The scripture is of that day and hour, no man knows, not the angel of heaven, but my Father only. But then we're also told here, a clear and harmonious explanation of this scripture was given by those who are looking for the Lord. How many of you are looking for the Lord? Why are you looking? Because we know where he is. We're looking for his coming. We're also told here that we may know when his coming is near. The words spoken by Christ in the memorable conversation with his disciples and all of it after he had for the last time departed from the temple. We're told here it says that the, the disciples asked that question. But then the answer was, though no man knoweth the day or the hour of his coming, we are instructed and required to know when it is near. How do we know that? We are further taught that to disregard his warning and refuse to neglect to know when his advent is near will be as fatal for us as it was for those who lived in the days of Noah, not knowing when the flood was coming. Were there signs in Noah's day? Yeah, there were many signs. You could tell as the, the ark itself began to take shape. I mean, think about this. For 120 years, Noah was hammering and he was preaching. As that ark took shape, all of a sudden, the sides were up. They were starting to do the insides. And then all of a sudden, something happened that they've never seen before. What was it? Forget the rain. We're not there yet. Don't get ahead of me. 
animals. Not, not just any animals, but animals that came through in perfect organization. I wonder if Noah was a little uh, concerned when the termites walked in. <laughs> but here they come in, and they go right into the ark, guided by angels, led by angels into the ark. And then people probably were watching, but yet none of them went in. And then all of a sudden, Noah's family went in. And then what happened? The door shut. Noah didn't say, see ya, close the door. No, 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 it wasn't anything like that. Noah was already inside, and an unseen angel closed that door. Once that door was closed, what was that? That was the close of probation. That's right. You see, we're told here in Great Controversy and the parable in the same chapter contrasting the faithful and the unfaithful servant and giving the doom of him who said in his heart, the Lord delays his coming. For a long time, since 1844, God has been waiting to send Jesus back. Do you know what he's waiting for right now? People said, well, it could be, could be very soon. It, it is, but there's still things that we have to go through in the timeline. There's still the latter rain that's got to be poured out. The shaking is taking place right now in the messages, and we're told in early writings 270, I asked the meaning of the shaking. I had seen what was shown. It would be caused by the straight testimony called for by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodicean. Who's the Laodicean? Us. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and pour forth the straight testimony. Some will not bear this straight testimony. They will rise up against it. And this is what causes the shaking among God's people. Now, I'm, I, I've been to many, many churches. And I've preached in many countries of the world. And I can tell you, you're very much present truth. But there are other churches I've been to I, I sometimes have to go back to the bulletin and look. Is that Seventh-day Adventist church? Hmm. You know, you have to walk around the drum set when you come up to the front. Actually, I don't, get, I don't ever get to preach in those types of churches. The shaking has to take place, and you know what happens in the shaking? We're told today that 75% of our young people are leaving the church. We pay big bucks to send our kids to Adventist institutions so that they can come out disillusioned, bewildered, and brainwashed. So I believe that in my own heart, the shaking is going to take out 75, 80% of us. And then from there, we've got to have the latter rain and the loud cry so that all of a sudden the churches get filled with those 11th hour workers. But what scares me is that many of you will be our former brethren. And you know what we're told about former brethren. They will be our most hated enemies. We're coming to that. And I hope that time doesn't last very long. You see, we are told and we are required to know when Advent is near. And we're even said here, Christ has given signs of his coming. He declares that we may know when his when he is near, even at the door. And then he says of these signs, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. 
this generation shall not pass. Now, in your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. For those who are wondering, I don't put my Bible text on the screen because I want you to see it from your own Bible. And if you have to, is there a pew Bible in here? I need to talk to Pastor Doe about that. Take those out. Okay, Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that by the way of the the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, and he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones from here with you. And so they took their journey from Sukkoth and camped camped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of fire, or sorry, pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night before the people. Wow, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? I mean, to know that you've got shade, no sunscreen needed. The plan was, go to the promised land. I'm giving you this land, let's go. But things happen along the way. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1. Do you know what Numbers is about? I'll give you a hint. Numbers. At least chapter 1 is. Numbers chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. It says here, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel. There were a lot of them. They had just come out of Egypt. Numbered them by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male individually. Remember, they didn't count the females. Females were not... In the Hebrew culture, females are kind of nothing. In fact, Jews would thank the Lord every morning that they, men, that they were born a male and not a woman. From 20 years old and above, who are able to go to war for Israel. Now this phrase, this phrase is very important to understand because this phrase, from 20 years old and above, we'll, we'll see that again. But let's turn to the next Chapter, chapter 2, verse 32, and let's see what the actual results of that tally was. In chapter 2, verse 32, it says, These are the ones who are numbered of the children of Israel by their fathers' houses. All who are numbered according to the armies of the forces were 603,550 men counted. Okay, so think about this for a moment. Let's do the math. You've got 603,550 men. How many women would there be? About the same, right? 600,000 men, 600,000 women. Now, do the math. How much do you have so far? 1.2 million. You guys are sharp. Some people, I'm there. Okay. Now, let's just say conservatively, there was no Social Security back then. So Social Security were your children, right? 
You have lots of children because then they will take care of you for many years. So let's, but let's say that they only had three kids, just to make the numbers easy. So if they had three kids, how many children would that be? 1.8 million. Now you add the 1.8 to the previous number, and how much do you have? Three million. You got three million Hebrews marching through the wilderness. Think about that for a moment. Do you know what the population of Sacramento is? It's about 500,000 people. Start thinking about that. That's a lot of people. I mean, when I get stuck in traffic in Houston or Chicago, I mean, that's a lot of people. Now, let's look at this verse. This phrase, 20 years old and above, is used 15 times just in the first chapter alone. So this is kind of important. Now, turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1. We'll see the journey that they took and map out where they went. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19. The instruction from the Lord is to just go. And God tells the Israelites to take possession of the land. And so we find in verse 19, it says, So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites. As the Lord your God has commanded us, then we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord your God is, what? Giving us. Okay, did they have to pay anything? Was there any interest fee? No, nothing like that. Just take it. And as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you, do not fear or be discouraged. Hmm. Verse 22. And every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us, and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. Why did they do that? Did you say doubt? Doubt. They were a little concerned, weren't they? Now, think about this for a moment. Think of the characteristics of these Israelites. Where did they just come from? Egypt. What was their spiritual aptitude when they were in Egypt? Were they keeping the Sabbath? Not really. Were they following the health message? No. Did they really know God? No, not at all. So coming through here, there's a lot of questions. Uh, Moses, uh, we don't quite know who you are. You want us to go do what? Because they don't understand God. So they're looking at Moses as the lead guy. Now, notice what's said in Patriarchs and Prophets. It says, 11 days after leaving Mount Horeb, the Hebrew host encamped at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran, which was not far from the borders of the Promised Land. Here it was proposed by the people that spies be sent up to survey the country. The matter was presented before the Lord by Moses, and permission was granted. This was plan B. This was not plan A. And we find here that men were chosen as had been directed, and Moses bade them go and see the country, what it was, its situation, its natural advantages, and the people that dwell therein, whether they're strong or weak, few or many. And since you're going to go, then also observe the nature of the soil 
and its productivity and bring back the fruit of the land. If you're going to go do this, then I want a full write-up. Let's do it right. So let's see what happens in Numbers chapter 13, verse 27. Numbers chapter 13, verse 27. The Bible tells us, now they had departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told them and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites, they dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. What were they essentially saying right there? No. There's just no. <laughs> we're, not, we're not going there. You see, I mean, there's too many people, there's too many issues, there's giants in the land. So what happens? As these spies were there, 10 of them are, in, 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 in. no, we can't. All of a sudden, between the 10, psh, come through two of them. Who are they? Caleb and Joshua. And what's, what are they saying here? Look at verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people who dwell there, we saw in them, they were what? Giants. And they were like giants, and the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, so we were in their sight. Whoa. Good report? That was a pretty bad report. So this is what happens as a result of that. Go to the next chapter, chapter 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long... Shall I bear with his evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephthah, Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in, but your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in. And they shall know the land which you have despised, but as for you, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. Was God happy? No. Absolutely not. God was not happy with this. Now go back to verse 18. Verse 18, the same chapter 14. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. 
Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy. This is Moses talking. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice. What's the ten times? The plagues. So I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest, right? And it says, they shall certainly not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. How big is this rejection? Go to the Ten Commandments that we find in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to look into the second commandment there and see what God is saying here. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who... Those are strong words. They didn't use that in numbers, those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, now jump back to Numbers 32. I know it's a lot of Bible verses, but you have to understand the history behind this. Numbers chapter 32, verse 13. God was angry with a particular group of people And we find in verse 13, it says, So the Lord's anger was aroused against who? Who? Israel. And he made them wander in the wilderness how long? Why 40 years? Well, it says, Until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was what? Gone. So we find that according to that, there is a purging that takes place. Now, let's look at Psalms 95, verse 10. Psalms 95, verse 10. As Pastor Doug would always say, you can't just hinge everything on one Bible verse. So we've got to see it in other places. Psalms 95, verse 10. David writes here, For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So there's certain principles I want you to understand here. Number one, the principle is that they didn't understand God's ways. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9 says that my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God thinks differently than us. So we, we should not just say, but I think. You ever hear people say that? You read the Bible, you read from them spirit prophecy, and then they'll say, but I think. You know what I say to that? I don't care what you think. (laughs) Because God says this, and God said this to his prophet, so what does that say to you? You don't have any weight. It's what God says. Now, this is Old Testament. 
I just gave you two from the Old Testament. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. And as we look at this, we will find what God is trying to say here. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, when? Why didn't he say tomorrow? Because some will not make it till tomorrow. We've only been granted today. Do you realize that? We have yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Yesterday is we call history. You can't do anything with it. Tomorrow, what can you do? You're planning already your tomorrow? I got things to do tomorrow. I may not make it tomorrow because tomorrow is still a mystery. God gives us today, and in, wonderfully in English, it works out today, is also called past, present, future. He gives us a gift, and that is today. It's wrapped up called the present. So when he says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works, how long? Forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go in their stray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Will disobedience get you into the kingdom of heaven? Okay, so let's get this straight. How long is a generation? 40 years. It starts when? It starts at what age? Do you remember Numbers chapter 1? 20, okay. And it ends when? Okay, this is simple math. You got the 1.2 million, so let's try it again. It starts at what? Ends when? How long does it go? How old are you? No. Okay, so you get that, right? Now, let's look at something here. Daniel 8, 14. You don't even have to look it up because all of you know what that says. I hope you do. What does it say? Unto 2,300 days. The sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, we know 2,300 days in prophecy is what? Years. So this brings us to what time frame? 1844. Wow, okay. So it brings us to 1844. Notice this book. This book here is written by Elder Taylor Bunch. It's called The Exodus in Type and Anti-Type. And actually, do you remember the name Elder Pearson, Robert Pearson? From 66 or something like to 76, he was a very, very beloved president of the General Conference. He even quoted from this too, not what this is, but he even mentioned this type of thing. One of the greatest parallels consisting of types and anti-types is found in what we call the Exodus and the Advent movement of ancient and modern Israel. Bunch writes, the Lord delivered Israel, ancient Israel, from the bondage of Egypt and led them through the wilderness into the earthly Canaan or the promised land. The exodus from Egypt and the experiences of Israel were typical of the gathering of modern Israel out of the darkness of modern Egypt and spiritual Babylon to lead them into the heavenly Canaan. These are the two greatest religious movements of all history. The two what? Greatest movements. 
Both arose in fulfillment of prophecy and accomplished their work in harmony with a divine purpose and moved forward under the leadership of God of heaven. So what do we have? We have type and we have anti-type. The Israelites were the type. The Advent movement, the Adventist movement, is the anti-type. Are you with me? Some of you, how many of you have heard somebody say to you, you look just like your mom. Or you look just like your dad. Would your mom or dad be the type or the anti-type? The type. Right? Now we have twin girls. They're identical twin girls. I don't know which one's type or anti-type on that one. <laughs> but I'll tell you an interesting one. They, before one of them got married at Grass Valley this year, the other one was already married, and she says, hey, Dad, uh, Ian, her husband, wants to meet Ben before the wedding. So could you get us a place in um, uh, Memphis? I said, sure. So I booked the place. Two nights, they came together, and I'm watching on the map as they're both getting there, and I had booked it in Madison's name. Lauren gets there first. Lauren goes to the front desk and says, hi, I'd like to check in. Says, what's your name? Uh, Lauren Ho. Oh, sorry, it's in somebody else's name. Well, she says, whose name? It's in Madison Gale's name. Oh, that's my sister. She should be here any moment. She looks out. Oh, she's here. I'll go tell her. Goes outside. Madison, it's in your name. You need to check in. Madison walks in. Hi, I'd like to check in. The lady says, huh, so you think you can go out and change your shirt and come back in? And then Lauren walks in, and she's like, oh, I get it. The type and the anti-type look very close. We are which one? Anti-type. Now, let's go back to the second slide I showed you, medical history. Whatever happened to your parents will most likely happen to you. So when we look at past, it's going to come to the future. So... A generation is how long? 40 years. God was angry with the third, third and fourth generations, right? Trick question. You from South Africa? Whereabouts? Where? Okay. God was angry to the third and fourth generation. Trick question. Was there a fifth generation of Israelites? How many of you say yes? How many of you say no? How many of you would say, I have no idea? Okay, what was Daniel? Was Daniel an Israelite? That was after they went through... Right? So that means there must be other generations beyond that. Right? Now, that, I'm not trying to trick you, but what I'm trying to say is that this generation that went on, imagine you have five people here. Uh, let me ask you, how many of you spent time in the principal's office when you were in school? Can I see your hands? Yeah, I, I kind of figured that after you did Sabbath school. Yeah. <laughs> So let's just say, for the ease, that we name them kid number one, two, three, four, five. That's their names, okay? Now, principal comes out and says, you guys are in a lot of trouble. I want to see you in my office. Number one, number two, number three, number four, get in my office right now. 
So they walk in. Number five sitting there panicking, probably wet his chair there, thinking, what do you think is going through his mind? I got away with it, right? Somehow, the sins didn't transgress to him. So think about this for a moment. If God was angry with the third and fourth generation, then certainly the fifth must have followed because the Bible is history, right? So when you think about this, then we have first generation of the Israelite movement, second generation, third generation, fourth generation, then you get to us, and all of a sudden... 1844 begins the clock for the Advent movement. And where are we at? Well, you get to generation one of the Seventh-day Adventist church, the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And it goes from 1844 to 1884. What do we know about this generation? Number one, this generation is very young. Very young. James White, Ellen White, John Loughborough, all those guys. There's only one old guy. Who is it? The old captain, Joseph Bates, he was quite the stickler. You know that? If you were on Bates' ship, there was no smoking. There was no swearing. He said, this is my ship. You will not do this. I have a bottle of gin, but that's only for when there's medical purposes. But you don't touch that. And there will be no sailing. And you will be sober. So this generation... They didn't go and preach because they had a, a demon. <laughs> I like to always make fun of that. They have a, you have a demon in you. It's doctoral ministry is what it is. They didn't do that. There were no colleges there. Do you know what they did? They had the Bible, they had the concordance, and they studied by candlelight. And that's what they did. And when they discovered things, it's when they went out on their their route as a pastor, and they preached with a passion because they believed it with all their heart. When was the last time you heard somebody preach something because they really believed it? But there's a problem with Generation One. Generation One didn't really teach it to their children, so the sins transgressed to the next generation. And what do we know about Generation Two? Generation Two comes along, and all of a sudden, at the beginning of this generation, there's a problem that takes place. Because all of a sudden, Sunday Law comes in about 1881, 82, 83, and it's beginning to be a problem. It's not on the books yet. I mean, yes, in 1888, there was a big blow-up with H.W. Blair, Senator of New Hampshire. And he's trying to pass the Sunday Bill. Well, the church goes out, and they send A.T. Jones to to. Congress to fight off. The Seventh-day Baptists send another representative as well. But the difference is the Baptists are saying, no, 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 you can't, you can't have a Sunday law just for Sunday, where Jones is saying, no, you can't have, constitutionally, you can't proclaim anything separation of church and state. You can't even pick any day. Even if we want to say, well, let's make the Seventh-day holy, that's not constitutional. But at the beginning... When this was all going on, what happened was, if you had a Catholic and you had an Adventist that were working in the field together in the farm on Sunday, the police would come and they arrest both of them. Then they find out, oh, you're a Catholic? You can go. But they would keep the Adventists. So there was problems there. But then right at the beginning of this, in 1888, 
a bigger problem takes place. The most ominous general conference session that took place in Minneapolis. What was the issue? Righteousness by faith. What was the issue with that righteousness by faith? Well, you had the leadership of the church, G.I. Butler and his whole entourage, saying, no, we can't. We can't accept the message of righteousness by faith. But who said that we could? Well, Ellen White wasn't one of the big spokespersons then, but they always watched her. There were two others. Who were they? Jones and Wagner. Notice, Caleb and Joshua were the type. Jones and Wagner were the anti-type. In rejecting the promised land, in rejecting the righteousness by faith, those were saying, the leadership of the church were saying, no, we can't. But yet Ellen White sided with who? Jones and Wagner, saying the Lord has given Jones and Wagner a most precious message. Generation two did not teach it to their children. So we have the third generation pops up. And what do we have in the third generation? Right near the end of this generation in 1957, a problem occurs because Barnhouse, an evangelical leader, comes to the Adventist church, more specifically to Elder Froome, and says, what do you guys believe? You know, because we look at the books and you guys are a cult. Can you define for us? Tell us what you believe and all that stuff. Froome is trying to play nicey-nice with the evangelicals to say, hey, we're just like you guys. He's trying to whitewash all the distinction of the Adventist church, and he's trying to just sweep it under the rug. And you know what? Every time Froome wrote something, it had to go through a department of the GC, which kind of is now BRI, Biblical Research Institute. But these were the scholars back then. And I was reading an article by Herbert Douglas. He was in that department. And every time Froome wrote something, oh, these guys had to tick, rewrite the whole thing to make it theologically correct. And this was taking a lot of time. And Froome was getting very agitated, and he was getting very irritated. Finally, after months of this, because there was pressure from Barnhouse, Froome just said, that's it. You guys aren't going to touch it anymore. I'm just going to finish this, and we're done. Do you know what we're told? Douglas, Herbert Douglas went through, and one day there was one of the theologians came out, and he had a towel over his arm, and he was carrying a basin of water. And they set the basin of water down, and they all the theologians in that department washed their hands of questions on doctrine. They didn't want anything to do with it because it was a theological nightmare. Did you know that our church is still reeling from the rejection of righteousness by faith? We're still reeling because we've become watered down with questions on doctrine? I was at the 50th Symposium in 2007 of Questions on Doctrines at Andrews University. And it was interesting because the 83-year-old secretary now for Froome was there. And she was sharing what she recalled on that day that was happening. So Generation 3 doesn't teach it to their children either. And all of a sudden we have Generation 4 from 1964 to 2004. 
What do we know of this generation? This generation, do you remember? Do you know how this and this came about? This came about as a result of generation four. But it wasn't in TV screens. Oh, no, no, because we didn't have TV screens that big back then. We had these big, humongous things that you plugged in that were about as deep as they were wide. Do you remember that? But they had a a screen that you pulled down, and then they have an overhead projector that they put over here, and they would project these praise songs. Do you remember the praise songs? There was a farmer that once said to his wife, Martha, I'm going to go into the, the big city areas because I, I, I just want to experience it. She says, what do you, what, why do you want to do that, Jed? Well, I just want to go in there. He comes back from the city church. Martha says, so Jed, what did you discover? Well, they sing these praise songs. What's a praise song? And he says, well, if I sing a, Mar- a hymn, Martha, it would be like, Martha, the black cows, the white cows, they're out of the fence, Martha. He says, but if they sing a praise song, it'd be like, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, the black cows, the white cows, the spotted cows, the purple cows, the red cows, the green cows, the yellow cows, they're out of the fence, Martha, oh, Martha. That's a praise song. 7-11, seven words sung 11 times. That was generation four that did it. Generation four of our church wants to be so much like the world, they start changing our schools. Do you notice it was during that time period? All of a sudden, our schools changed names. We went from Southern Missionary College, Southern College, and then all of a sudden become Southern Adventist University. We become very prestigious. You notice all these names? How many of you notice these? And then there's the Canadians who... I'm sorry, being a Canadian still, we just can't get it together. Who would name their school Canadian University College? (laughs) Makes no sense. Thankfully, they changed it to Berman University. Why do we change the name? Because we want to look good to the world. You know what happens when you do that? You have to meet United States accreditation. And when you meet the accreditation, guess what? Things change in the educational system. All of a sudden, the Adventist church now has to teach the theory of evolution. But we have, in some of our colleges and universities, we have rogue professors who now come out of the woodwork and and they teach our children that no, evolution was really real. They don't teach it as a theory, they teach it as a fact. And our students come out, our children come out, and they're like, gone. And we wonder why. But generation four doesn't teach it to their children. Now we're at the fifth generation. The fifth generation goes from 2004 to 2044. I know what some of you are thinking. Jesus is not coming in 2044. I'm not stating that at all. I'm not trying to set a date. I'm just following this timeline. Listen very closely. I want to share with you a quotation. I hope this actually got changed. 
Here's the quotation. Prophets and Kings 4.16. There is a limit beyond which the judgments of Jehovah can no longer be delayed. Do you know what God is waiting for right now? He's waiting for us to get off of our rear ends and actually do something with the message. Are you, are you with me? He's waiting for us to actually not only proclaim the message, but actually do something in ourselves. Submitting ourselves to the, the working of the Holy Spirit. We're told that in Revelation 3.18, I counsel of you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Do you know why the gold has to be tried in the fire? Because it's got to be purified. The gold represents our character. Character needs to go through a purification process. None of us, if God were to walk into our presence here, all of us would be dead. Do you understand that? Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We will not be able to see God with the state that we're in today. But we know that there will be holy people at the end. Revelation twenty two eleven 11 tells us that. There will be holy people who have perfected character. And I know that this is a church, I can safely say that with, without getting persecuted. But you say that out there and you talk about last generation theology and you get crucified by the mainstream church. They think, oh, no, 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 no. You will sin until the day Jesus comes. Really? No way. Let him who is holy, let him be holy still. Christ is waiting for us to get our act together. You see, when the refiner looks at the gold that's in the heat, in the crucible, it's covered with all kinds of junk that he can't see. So he takes it off, and then he scoops out all the impurities, the dross that we call it. Once it's scooped off, he puts it back, and he starts that process again, the refining. Takes it off, removes it. When there is a full reflection of the refiner's face, he knows the gold's been purified. We're not ready. We're not ready for Jesus to come because we're not reflecting his character. We don't... We wouldn't have need to have Sabbath school lessons like we do on... Helping the needy, taking the message out. If we really understood what salvation meant for us, we would take the message out there. Testimonies, volume four, volume six, page 422. No sooner is a man converted than in his heart is born a desire to make known to others what a precious friend he has found in Jesus. The saving, sanctifying truth cannot be shut up in the heart. But yet we stay silent. And in this morning in Sabbath school class, you ask, how many of you know your neighbors? How many of you know their names? I live, we live in, a, in Sun City, Roseville. Yeah, I'm that old. And I know everybody on our court. And they know me, the preacher. And I was visiting my next-door neighbor, Ed and Christy, 83. She says to me a couple Sundays ago, she's got a very sharp voice. 
You know, Alden, the thing I like about you is you don't, you don't preach at us. But yet the whole time I'm there, she's asking me all the religious questions. When are you going to be preaching close by? Because we want to come hear you. Three weeks, two weeks ago, I preached at Folsom. They were there, sitting there. I didn't push it on them. They asked me. When are our neighbors going to say to us, hey man, I want to come to church with you. Are we not letting our light shine enough? You see, this watchman on the tower, there's five generations, but this is very interesting. The watchman in Ezekiel 33 began his watch at 6 p.m., okay? 6 p.m., it's a six-hour shift. So it goes from 6 p.m. until what time? Midnight, that's watch one. Watch two goes from midnight until 6 a.m., that's watch two. Watch three, 6 a.m. until noon. Watch four, noon to 6 p.m. But here's a question for you. Would there be a fifth watch? Could there be a fifth watch? If there was a fifth watch, when would it go? From 6 p.m. until midnight. Would that be the same watch as watch one? Yeah, it would be. Same time period. Interestingly enough, if you've ever dealt with generation five, they're very much like generation one. They don't have a lot of money. I come, I'm, I'm the tail end of the baby boomers. How many of you are a baby boomer out here? Can I see your hands? Yeah, see, these are the workhorses. They live to work, right? It's not about the, we live to work. We, we work all day long. But the new millennials, no, 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 no. They, live, they, they work to live. You ever, how many of you have ever worked with a millennial? How is it? Can I go home now? Is it okay? I'm going to be off Monday. Is that all right? You can't get them to work. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm shaking my head, and I'm, I'm pounding my head thinking, but Ellen White says that there's an army of young people rightly trained. I'm thinking, where are they? I don't see them. But you know, I'm reminded, the Lord says to me, Gideon had 32,000, but I didn't use 32,000. I let them go home, the ones who didn't want to be there. And we were down to 10,000. And after 10,000, still too many. It got down to 300. And you know what? Did the 300 do the job? Yes. We're not talking a whole army. We're just talking a little battalion. It's all it takes. A little group of people that are really earnestly looking. The watchman on the tower, listen. Fifth generation starts at 6 p.m. It ends at what time? Midnight. Who gives the midnight cry? The last generation. The last generation who are convicted of this. Look at what Bunch says. 
By the end of the fourth generation, the Israelites were in such dense darkness and idolatry that they were but little better than the Egyptians themselves. Because we're so worldly. We're so much into the world. We've lost the distinction. It used to be that we could just say, that's an Adventist right there. But we can't do that. I remember I was flying one time from Cape Town to Johannesburg. I was on one of these ungodly early morning flights, and I had a vegetarian meal. And I'm sitting at the, this exit row, thankful for an exit row, 6 o'clock in the morning. And I have a great controversy, and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, who do you want me to give this to? And I look at the two young ladies next to me, and I said, good morning, how are you? And they start speaking this language I've never heard before. And I know a lot of different languages. I'm like, do you speak English? Okay, that's not going to work. I look over this side. Big dude sitting there. He's got his sleeves rolled up, tattoo underneath here. He's got a pack of smoke, sunglasses on his head, and he's just leaned back. Nope. I mean, just like that, you stereotype people, right? Nope. The meal comes out. They give me... South African people don't understand American breakfast. They gave me lettuce and tomatoes at 6 o'clock for breakfast. And I thought, my stomach is not going to, re to accept that at all. So I thought, okay, I'll just fast for breakfast. I look over at the big dude. Eggs, sausage, bacon. He is just... Takes the salt, you know, those people who salt their food without tasting it first? Through the whole thing. And he's just like three chews, one, two, three, down the hatch. And I'm thinking, okay, he hasn't masticated his food, he doesn't understand. And I'm looking, I'm actually kind of enjoying him, looking at him enjoying that meal. He gets done, he practically licks everything up. And I'm thinking, I got yogurt. Why'd they give me yogurt? I asked for vegan. So I looked at it. He just ate his yogurt. So I take my yogurt, and I said to him, hey, would you like some yogurt? He's like, yeah, sure. He said, you don't eat it? I said, no. Why? Is it for religious reasons or health reasons? And I'm like, oh, boy. I said, kind of for, for both, yeah. And he says, what religion are you? And I said, uh, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And he says, me too. <laughs> what? I was just told, what? You're, and I went off on him. Look, you just ate bacon. You just ate sausage. And then he, he just gets smaller and smaller in his chair. And he says, okay, I'm backslidden. And then the Lord says, him. And I said, bro, do you remember growing up in the church, reading Great Controversy? He's like, yeah, when I was in grade school, I said, I got a book for you. You need to read this. I said, do you see all the things happening in the world today? Bro, you got to start reading this. I get to Johannesburg. I'm preaching for a camp meeting at Sedaven. His brother sends me a message on Facebook. Pastor Ho, what did you say to my brother? Because he's on fire now. When are God's people going to open their mouths? Do, do you understand what's happening today in this world? 
Do you understand that the time period that we're living in right now? Start looking at all the different things that are happening in this world today and the technological advances that are happening. Look, I just want to pause for a minute and kind of wake you up to the fact of how close we are to the